Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I am here with special guest Walter Brueggemann today. And we are going to have a great discussion about money and possessions in the Bible. Uh, Just so you know, we actually started this discussion once, and something went haywire with my recording device. So we're going to start it all over again. We weren't too far in, but I do want to let everybody know who's listening that one week from tomorrow, at least at the time of this recording, on October 21st, uh, I will be releasing the, the world premiere video of my song Advent Hymn, Watching, Waiting, Longing. It's from my album Hymns, Prayers, and Invitations, and we were uh, so blessed to be able to make this music video with Agape Media out of Dayton, Ohio, and I just wanted to let you know that is coming. We are hoping that many churches will be able to use it in their Advent celebrations this year, but be watching at rickleyjames.com or on my Facebook pages, Twitter. You know how to find me if you're online, so uh, just be watching on October. October 21st is when we release that. Well, I'm super thrilled to have my guest, Walter Brueggemann, here together today. I'm going to give a very, very quick uh, bio about him, and then we're going to get into our conversations on his new book, Money and Possessions in the Bible. Walter Brueggemann is surely one of the most influential Bible interpreters of our time. He is author of over 100 books and numerous scholarly articles. He is also a sought-after speaker and just a great lunch companion, as I have found out two years running now as we have done this. His newest book is Money and Possessions, and we are going to have a great conversation about that today. So the Bible has a lot to say on the topic of money and possessions. Um, I didn't ask you this before, so we'll try this to make it a little more fresh this time, since we just started the conversation before. Where do you even begin when you're starting to write a commentary like this? Well, I had a very hard time uh, with this uh, with this topic uh, when I agreed to write the book eight years ago. I uh, kept it two years, and I couldn't think what to do, uh, so I turned it back, and then two years later they came back and asked me again. So I finally, what I did was to start with the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. <laughs> Uh, and I, I read uh, Thou Shalt Not Covet in relationship to uh, the crisis in the Garden of Eden mm. where the word covet uh, is uh, usually translated desired that uh, the first couple desired the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge and so I linked creation uh, to the Sinai commandment and okay. uh, then I went from there uh, because I think that uh, if, you, if you think about money that uh, the the tenth commandment on coveting probably is the uh, is is the focal point because coveting or greed uh, is a violation of what the Creator intends for mm. our life in the world. Wow! All right. Well, that sounds like a great place to begin with. Yeah. So, in this book, you have six theses that you present as we are looking at at wealth 
money and possessions from a biblical standpoint. And so I'm just going to start with these six, and we're going to see where our discussion takes us today. We already know where we're going for at least the first two before the recording I stopped a moment ago. <laughs> so your first thesis is money and possessions are gifts from God. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that and tell us how that is different from maybe the prosperity gospel that is so often yeah. preached. I think that the, the thesis uh, that they're all gifts from God is, is an attempt to resist the uh, deep seduction we all face uh, in an individual individualistic capitalism that my money is mine, I made it, and I can do what I want to which is an assumption of self-sufficiency. And obviously the Bible wants everywhere to insist that we are not self-sufficient, but that everything we have and everything we can be uh, is a gift from God. Uh, So I think it's grounded in creation that uh, money is is a social way of valuing commodities and all obviously all the commodities of worth Arise from the generativity of creation, uh, otherwise we wouldn't have them. Uh, so I think that that thesis wants to contradict the parable of uh, the fool who tore down his barns and built bigger barns because he mm. thought he didn't have enough yet. But he obviously thought if he had enough barns and if he had enough grain, he could be self-sufficient. And mm. uh, the parable wants to uh, want to refute that. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, the prosperity gospel is uh, simply a, a religious palaver about self-sufficiency. Mm. Uh, so it's an easy uh, self-deception. And what I like to do is to contrast abundance with prosperity because abundance is God's intention that all the neighbors should share the wealth, mm. whereas the prosperity gospel uh, teaches us that uh, my wealth is mine and I don't have any obligations. To mm. it. So it's sort of like building a neighborhood pool rather than my own personal backyard pool, that's you know, exactly what it's like. <laughs> in some ways. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Um, and, and I love how you emphasize in, in your writing that that these things, if they are anything at all to us, they are gifts and not achievements because these are graces if, if God has given them to us. And so that's a wonderful emphasis and that if we forget the giver of all good gifts, that the gifts themselves are sure to turn into distortions of what they were intended to be. I think that's right. So. I think that in the manna story, for example, when they tried to store up manna, mm. uh, it rotted on them and smelled bad. Right. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good analogy for our wealth so often. I think so. <laughs> well, your second thesis is that money and possessions are received as rewards for obedience. Again, that could could be taken the wrong way if we're not careful. So I want to give you a chance to elaborate a little bit more on that point, too, that money and possessions are received as rewards for obedience. Well, this is a, this is a, a strong... Um, Trajectory in the Bible that's rooted in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses says if you obey God you'll prosper and if you don't you won't. Uh, it's echoed in uh, the book of Proverbs that uh, if you work hard uh, you'll come out well otherwise you're a fool. And as you mentioned in Psalm 1 uh, the same thing if you keep the Torah uh, you'll be like a tree planted by living water and all of that. 
So it is a it is a strong strand in the Bible, but it runs into trouble when you get to the book of Job, because Job's life story is that he kept all the commandments and it didn't work for him. Yeah. And and so the the big crisis for for that kind of theology is that our experience simply teaches us that it's not true. Mm. It's true most of the time, uh, but it's not true. Yeah. And uh, uh, so that leads us to recognize that about money, or about anything, but about money, there's no, there's no single teaching in the Bible yeah. that what you get is a reflection uh, that come from many different people's kinds of experience about that. And I think that uh, successful people uh, read the Bible and they gravitate to that proposition mm. uh, until it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So if we're not careful, we are the ones that are just the ones building bigger barns and saying God has blessed us, where in fact maybe the word blessing means something completely different in Scripture. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, at the risk of breaking my recorder again, because I said this uh, before <laughs> when we were talking, um, I, I, w- I love that you made uh, the, the, the poll of Job in the midst of when you're talking about this, because if we aren't careful, um, we can as Christians, and we have so often, just taken something that's written in the Bible and said, well, that's it, end of story. But uh, as we were talking again uh, a few minutes ago, I I had said that isn't the understanding more from a Jewish perspective when you approach Scripture that Scripture is something to be grappled with and questioned and kind of argued about and mauled over and and really wrestled with. And so it's not like there's um, necessarily always this, okay, it says that, so that has to be true and there's no other answer even if everything in the world proves it wrong, you know. I think that's exactly right. And the, the rabbis always understood that. They, they, the rabbis understood that every time you look at a text, you can turn it and see a different angle, or every time you read a text, you can immediately find another text that says something different about that. Yeah. So the, the, what, the, what the Jewish interpretive tradition does is to resist uh, drawing final conclusions uh, and as you were pointing out, it's a great temptation among Christians to think that uh, texts have absolute meanings. And when you get to that absolute meaning, then you can quit thinking. Yeah. And uh, the Jewish tradition understands you can't ever quit thinking about these texts. And, and I think it's, you know, when you talk about the absolute meaning, which we struggle with, um, I, you know, religious language... You have to use metaphors to talk about God and to talk about things. And we are so bad in our culture of not understanding that certain things are metaphors in Scripture. They they don't necessarily encapsulate every single possible scenario in it, but they're they're a good way of a good starting point and a way to maybe speak about God. So even in a sense when we talk about these money and possessions that I know our, our listeners are probably struggling with, I think we, we run into that sometimes of these are these are good ways to discuss it, but we have to make room for the fact that life doesn't always work that way. That's so. exactly right. And, and, and the, the corrective in using metaphors is to have a great pluralism of metaphors mm. that keep correcting each other. Yeah. Uh, because if you just settle on a very narrow range of metaphors, then yeah. they feel like 
descriptions rather than metaphors. Yeah, yeah, and I, I feel like the the Bible's doing a lot of that. I feel like one book's fighting with the other a lot of times, you know, right. and as a corrective and as a way of really living this out together and, and helping us to decide what it means. I think we see it throughout church history. There wouldn't have been so many councils and so many, That's you right. know, I mean, there's so many there, church fights. Yeah, exactly. We're still trying to figure it out. Right. Well, let's move on to your to your third thesis, which is money and possessions belong to God and are held in trust by human persons in the community. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Well, it's a, it's a, that's a kind of an extension of the first thesis. Uh, I, I suppose our, our familiar image for that is the steward or the household manager. Uh, the steward uh, does not own the stuff, but it has to report uh, to the owner uh, and therefore has an obligation uh, to manage well. Uh, a couple Sundays ago in the lectionary, we had the uh, parable of the dishonest steward mm. uh, who uh, uh, crooked the books uh, for the sake of his future. Right. Uh, and and I think that means that while the uh, steward uh, makes some proximate decisions about the management of money, that the big long-term policy decisions about money are not made by the steward, but are made by the owner, mm. that is God. And so whatever, whatever we think about money is in the context of uh, what we think we know about God's will for money, which is not subject to our uh, approval or disapproval. And then we have we have to talk about what what is the will of the Creator God about money uh, that maybe uh, comes out somewhat differently than the way I myself would decide to do it if I had complete autonomy about it, right. which I don't. Mm. Yeah. And, and you talk about in the book some too that this role of a steward, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the same role assigned to the human couple in Genesis. 128 uh, concerning having dominion and that the steward is not the owner but is accountable to the owner for proper management. Exactly so. So, yeah. so we have this Adam and Eve couple that come on the scene. A few of our listeners have heard of them. And uh, you know, they're they're told really to be to be stewards of right. what I've given. And it's it's like the, the misuse of that is what leads them down the bad That's path. That's exactly right. And, and as you know that verse uh, is really important when we think about the environmental crisis. Sure. Uh, that that the, the earth needs to be cared for mm. according to the will of the Creator. And and not exploited, but cared for. That's a, an important distinction. That's right. That's right. So, so I think what we're really saying here is vote for Trump, right? No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just <laughs> oh, kidding. I had to throw that in. We're so close to the, the elections. I had to just, you know... As we talk about money and possessions, it's kind of hard not to in the midst. That's right. <laughs> no, let's let's move on to before I get into too much trouble with listeners here. Um, the fourth thesis of the book, and and that was an excellent point, by the way, about the the stewardship that's involved there. Uh, your fourth thesis, though, is that money and possessions are sources of social justice. And for whatever reason, social justice almost seems like a bad word to many Christians these days. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why that is. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if you could elaborate on, on that for us a little bit more. Well, it, uh, it, it, I think two things about biblical teaching on 
social justice. Uh, one is that the haves and the have-nots are bound in a common destiny, and the haves are not free to conduct their life as though they weren't in solidarity with the have-nots. Mm. And the other teaching, it seems to me, is that everybody who lives is a member of the community that is entitled to a viable existence. Mm. Uh, and uh, that entitlement is intrinsic to their existence, so we don't get to vote on it. Right. In the, in the uh, Old Testament, I think... Uh, the, the uh, classic examples of the have-nots are the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Mm. He keeps repeating those four, and then that comes to expression in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew 25, uh, about uh, I was in prison, and mm. I was homeless, and I was without food. And, uh, so uh, what, the, what the parable does is to go down the list of the have-nots and say that they are the place where Christ dwells. Mm. Uh, so uh, uh, that notion of communal solidarity is defining, and the the basic polemics of the prophets in the in the Old Testament are basically a critique of powerful elite people who thought that they were not in solidarity uh, with. Uh, the powerless and the vulnerable. Mm. I, I, this is going to seem very random with what you have just said, but have you ever read the novel The Exorcist before? I saw the movie. You saw the movie. It's very close. It actually is, is very it? close to the yeah, book, but it yeah. was written by a Catholic author uh, named Peter Blatty. And the book is actually considered sort of a faith classic, and that, that actually technically is, is one of the first big-budget faith-based films that we have, believe it or not. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting to think of it in that way. But I recently read the book for another discussion I'm hoping to have on another podcast. And what you said is actually something that in, in the beginning of the book, the author says, this quote is, what we give to the poor is what we take with us when we die. Wow. Yeah, and I just thought that was so powerful. Um, and obviously you don't get that from the movie. No, you certainly but, don't. But there's certainly a, a struggle in that book, right. and in that novelization of a person who's struggling with faith and in the midst of their struggle will not allow himself to not be working with the poor and the disenfranchised. And right. it's, it's even why he ends up... Um, sort of in that demonic place trying to cast that out of, of the poor girl that's a part of the story. But I, I always have, well, always since I've read it, I've, I've found that quote to be just so interesting and so powerful with what you yeah. were just describing, that, that what we give to the poor is what we take with us it's when we terrific. die. Yeah, that's it's right. a really, really good quote. That's right. um, so when we talk about money and possessions as social justice, I think we can see that um, especially from the aspect of the Torah, that money and just or money and possessions are actually for the well-being of neighbors, and especially the neighbors who do not have. That's right. That's right. And and we are in such a, a critical moment as a nation that let's just face it, we are the haves. I mean yes. we. We are not necessarily the good guy of the biblical story in this country. We, right. we always want to read it like, "Oh, we're always we're the we're the good ones. We're the ones yeah. that God blessed." But in fact, you know, I, I have friends that are working with the refugee crisis. One in particular, uh, Brandon Sipes, who who you've met before, um, he he actually is working with Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, 
and has found himself um, in different places around the world with refugees and is desperately calling Christians saying they need help. They are our neighbors. They are the neighbors that yeah. do not have. Yeah. We need to not allow fear of maybe one of them in the midst is a terrorist to stop us from our obligation to help our neighbors right. and our needy. And it's, it's even a biblical mandate that we can't turn from right. in some way. My, my experience is that what people love to do is to have a theoretical argument about socialism and capitalism. Mm. And that's, that is a dead end. The, the Christian question, the biblical question is, what does my neighbor have to have to live? Yeah. Does my neighbor need health care? Does my neighbor need housing? Does mm. my neighbor need food? And so on. And if, if, we, if we focus on the, the neighbor question, it would lead us not only to different practices, but it would lead us to different policies. Mm. And uh, so the, the centrality of the neighbor to uh, money questions is really urgent in the gospel. Well, I think I, I think it was Shane Claiborne that I heard say one time, uh, because he's a person that lives very simply in community, kind of lives day to day on the kindness of others so that he can give to others. And I think it was him that said, we are not against having good things, but in order for us to good things have good things, we don't want others to go without. Yep. And so what we want is for everybody to have those good things Amen. together. And let's Amen. all have them together. And that's a, I think that's a pretty good view of where the Bible would have us to take. Right. You know, we, we want everyone to enjoy. And so far be it from us if our having those good things keep others from having anything. That's, you know? that's exactly yeah. right. Yep. Well, this is, this is a good conversation. We're just flying through these points. We're going to have to go back and have a second lunch here in a minute. But, <laughs> um, but your, your fifth thesis is that money and possessions are to be shared in a neighborly way, which is, I mean, all these are a little bit similar to the they ones are, before are. them. Yeah. Um, but you talk about all members of the community are entitled to the wherewithal for a viable life of security, dignity, and flourishing. And maybe you could talk to us some about how Jesus echoes this. Well, Jesus, yes, that, that's exactly to the point. Jesus uh, kept raising the question about who is my neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, 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 the Old Testament uh, gets as far as to love your neighbor in uh, Leviticus, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, he extends that to say, love your enemy, so that Jesus is really making the argument that all the other people are our neighbors, and they are all uh, entitled uh, to uh, share the good things that we have. Mm. And, and I think uh, that in the New Testament, the, uh, the, the most dramatic... Uh, expansive view of neighborliness was the decision of the early church in the book of Acts to admit Gentiles. Mm. Uh, uh, what that did was to expand neighborliness beyond any sense of tribalism. And uh, the, the more anxious we are, as, since we now live in a very anxious time, the more anxious we are, the more we want to limit uh, neighborliness to our tribe or to people like us and uh, the the gospel uh, is an incredible push uh, that we see that people who are unlike us uh, mm. really are our neighbors and need to be treated that way mm. 
It's it, it's interesting in the political climate too that that you're talking about the the neighbors and and that we can't just as followers of Jesus have this focus on us. Um, I heard a, a certain politician who I already mentioned once. I I loathe to mention him again in, in this moment, but but on the way up here, I was listening to the radio and they were playing one of his clips about. Um, America first, America only, and the rest of the world, if we have any left over, we'll take care of them. Um, And there was the other side making the point, we want you to know around the world we're going to keep our promises. We aren't going to leave you high and dry. And it it leaves you with this interesting dichotomy in, in, um, in the political world. Of like, which one really sounds more like Jesus, right. you know, in that right. in that sense? Yeah. And uh, and I'm not going to claim that either of them are like Jesus, or that any of us are really as much right. as we should be. Right. But it's it's at least a cautionary, should I call it parable? When I hear things like that, of sure. which which side as a believer yeah. are you going to fall down on just in your life? Because we can't have that attitude of um, of this is this is only my house, and these are only my things. And even though the next door neighbor has a child that is starving to death, that's too bad. We have an abundance of food that they don't have, but it's mine. That's right. You know, and uh, and so I, I think it's just a cautionary tale for us yep. to, that that look closely at Jesus, um, because as, as believers, as Christians, Jesus is our model. Um, not Samson, not King Saul, not so many other people that are throughout uh, Scripture or Tiglath. Um, Tiglath Palizer, not our model. Okay, I, I want to talk a little bit more about Tiglath in a minute, but but we'll move on for All right, right now. I just want to say when you when you quote Trump about America only, America first, it sounds mm-hmm. it's it's different scope, but it sounds strangely like George Wallace's segregation today, segregation mm-hmm. tomorrow, segregation forever. Yeah. Uh, uh, Trump's mantra is not quite that small, but it's the same mindset that uh, keeps the stuff for us to the exclusion of them mm. and uh, it's a very uh, anti-gospel yeah. assumption or as Michael Gunger says in one of his songs it's it's not us or them it's us for them yep. and exactly. uh, yeah exactly. very much so yep. well good stuff well Michael Gunger if you're listening there you go Walter Brueggemann and I are talking about you so anyway <laughs> So your fifth point was money and possessions are to be shared in a neighborly way. And and I think that that really does echo Jesus. I, and, and you said something a few moments ago, too, on the last point about uh, the haves and the have-nots are heading the same direction. And we do see that in the story of the sheep and the goats with Jesus. I mean, everybody's heading to this same end together. Right. And it seems like the only difference uh, is what they did or did not do, you yep. know, in the yep. way that, that God responds to them in the end of that story. So lot, lots to, to take in and think about when it comes to money and possessions. Yep. Well, we are already up to your sixth thesis. It's unbelievable. We've gotten here already. We, <laughs> we, we almost did it twice <laughs> because of the recording. <laughs> but um, your sixth uh, thesis is that money and possessions are are not just good to be used by the community, but that money and possessions are seductions that lead to idolatry as yep. well. So yep. it's interesting that they can sort of be a both and. That's and, right. I think and, that's right. And maybe unpack that a little bit for Well, us. I think the, the, uh, the uh, quintessential story is the golden calf narrative in Exodus mm. 32, 
Uh, it probably is the case that the word we translate chaff is a bull, which means great virility. And if you put money and virility together, uh, it's very important that the golden bull is the icon that sits out in front of Wall Street. Mm. And uh, I, I think that in our society, the NFL is the new liturgy of the Golden Bull. Mm. It's all about money and violence and virility. Wow. Uh, so I think that stuff uh, comes together all in the, in the service of self-sufficiency. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, uh, and, and incidentally, in Ephesians and Colossians, when the writer names the things that contradict the gospel, he has a catalog of them, uh, in both letters, it says greed, parentheses, which is idolatry. Mm. Uh, so early on, they were identifying that kind of greed as, yeah. uh, as very anti-God. Well, yeah. and, and you point out, too, and I think this is a, a pretty awesome way, that, that money and possessions, they aren't inanimate objects. They aren't just like things that sit there. It's almost like love is a verb in the Bible. It's almost like these money and possessions have this verb type, you That's know, correct. action function as well That's as right. to where uh, they're forces of de- desire that they can evoke lust or yeah. they can evoke love in a certain yeah. ways that compels devotion and, and servitude. Yeah. Um, maybe talk to us just a minute about the fact that like silver and gold are not innocent, like inanimate objects. Yeah. The, the author who has understood this best is Jacques Allot. Uh, French sociologist. He's written a book about money, and 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 what he says is that that money is uh, capable of being an active demonic force mm. that talks us out of our life. Mm. Uh, so it's not an inanimate object, but it really is. It, you, you said it rightly. I think it has it has verbal capacity mm. uh, that that uh, talks us out of our life. Yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, much of the Bible attests that. Uh, in the, in the uh, dismal narrative in Joshua uh, 7, I think it is, of an Achan where he covets the silver and withholds it from the community and causes a great defeat. And, and he, he describes how he was so attracted to the silver mm. that he simply couldn't resist it. Mm. And uh, I think we know about that in our... Uh, monetized society yeah for sure yeah well it's all it's all very interesting in that that whole parallel and i don't know that i until i read what you'd written had ever thought of money and possessions in that way is something we live in and i I told you just a couple days ago i was in chicago at olivet university I don't know if you've ever had the the pleasure of meeting a theologian named Constance Cherry before, but she's written written a series of books. One of them is The Worship Architect. And uh, just in our conversation, she made reference to a book, and my my brain's not very good. I can't remember things sometimes. I think I wrote it down, but she was telling us about a book she read that's about idols. And and this book, the um, basic thesis of the book is that um, not only do idols lead us to destruction, but when we worship them, we start to look like them yes. in some ways too. Yep. Yep. And, I, and I think this goes right along with uh, what you're talking about. These, these are not um, uh, like morally neutral things, um, money and possessions. Yep. Yep. These are things that actually 
I know it's a weird stretch, but it is October. We're near Halloween. So that ec- that exorcist right. analogy yeah, again, right. yep. I wonder if at times we don't, we're not thinking about like demon possession and things, but we don't often think that maybe sometimes the things that we are being possessed by are things that are just as dangerous. That's right. That just look yep. differently. The specific text that, that, uh, that uh, relates to what Constance said, uh, I've just been working on it, Psalm 115 describes idols as uh, powerless. They, they have uh, hands but cannot feel. They have ears but cannot. And goes through all that. And then the next verse says, and those who worship them will become like them, mm. will become powerless and inept, mm. and, and so on. So I, I think the, the argument is a really important one, that yeah. we do become like what we worship. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty powerful. So... On the other hand of that, on the positive, imagine if we really worshipped the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exactly. together as the body of Christ. Maybe we really do start to begin to look like it's right. the other side of it, too. That right. we, we actually believe, uh, it's why I'm a believer, is I believe that God actually does transform lives. Yep. And bring something new and wonderful from them, and so, um, so I, I don't start from a, a, a standpoint of um, that we are all just uh, so far gone. There's no hope for us, and uh, as maybe Calvin would describe at times, you know, we're all just dung, but we get covered by snow, and then we're better. <laughs> I really do think that the redemption of God comes to us, and. If we start out as dung, we get transformed into something better somehow, (laughs) you know? That's exactly right. And so that's why it's all the more important that we become people of worship and that we become people who worship properly. Now, a few minutes ago, and and I really do think this connects to money and possession, we were talking at at lunch about the Eucharist and this this great Thanksgiving part of our service. And we were talking about how... That has been lost in so many of our congregations as the focal point of worship, where from the earliest times, it actually was what made our worship Christian, the fact that we did the Eucharist. And so often during that moment, at the conclusion of a service, when we got to the climax, it was at that moment of Thanksgiving where we received that offerings were also received to give to others. And I think... In many ways, our neglect of the Eucharist, our receiving from the Lord at His table, has also led to the neglect of the poor, where we allow others to receive from us that are in need. Yep. I wonder if do you have anything just to say on that about well, the matter. I, I think what you said is exactly right. It, that is, it is, a, it is a cluster and a convergence of ideas of God's abundance, uh, of our generosity so that the food that is represented at the table is the food that feeds the neighborhood. Mm. And uh, we've we've broken that connection, and the connection between them is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we are grateful at the table, so the word Eucharist means thanks, Mm -hmm. and it is out of gratitude that we gladly share food, bread, with people who are in need. Yeah. So uh, yeah. those those connections uh, are really important. Yeah. yeah. And and so almost when we're if we expand the Lord's prayer a little bit when we say give us this day our daily bread we are also saying provide for the poor among us. That's you right. Know, it's That's it's exactly a beautiful right. way to put it. Yeah. 
And and since we're in this time of year, I don't want to get too far into like political conversation, but I think it does have some relevance on what we're talking about. One way of when we say the Lord's Prayer, and we get to that part that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are in a sense saying, God's government come, God's politics be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder if we could just talk for a couple minutes about the idea, because I really do think this has been lost on us in the church, in North America especially. I, I can't speak so much from around the world. But I think we have a hard time understanding that the kingdom of God is a different politic altogether from like the politics of America. Sure. That we we um, we put so much stock into like for instance right now who the next president's going to be yeah. and I feel like everyone is sort of dissatisfied with the choices that we have and so often I hear despair from Christians about yeah. that yeah. and it makes me wonder do we really understand what the kingdom of God is yeah. Yeah. in the midst of that because no matter who's going to be elected that doesn't change the way we live and it doesn't change who ultimately our ruler is uh, in right. the midst of all that. I, I wonder, what are maybe some thoughts well, I, you have? I, uh, I suggested in my book that Jesus' use of the, of the phrase kingdom of God really means a new neighborly economy. Mm. So in Mark, when he his first utterance is the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, I think it means... Uh, Quit participating in the economy of the Roman Empire, which is an economy of greed. Mm. And I think he called his disciples to disengage from that anti-neighborly economic practice for the sake of an alternative economic practice. Mm. So it's very important, I think, to recognize that Jesus did not get executed by the Roman Empire because he was a nice man. Mm. He got executed by the Roman Empire because he was a threat to the way uh, the political economy was working, mm. uh, and he introduced an alternative. So I think uh, uh, there isn't any ground for despair among us, but we have to recognize that right now, right where we are, we can be practitioners of an alternative neighborly economy mm. that has all kinds of public political implications mm. uh, and I think that's what we need to be uh, working through now given yeah. what our society is yeah. yeah so what I'm really trying to say is who are you voting for no I'm just kidding <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding no <laughs> well no, I, I think uh, uh, as you and I were saying earlier uh, Hillary is uh, is uh, greatly compromised about things mm -hmm. no doubt but uh, uh, there's also no doubt that she is committed to neighborly practice mm -hmm. to a much greater extent than mm -hmm. uh, what's his name. Yeah, what's his name anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I, I just again, I just think that the the again, no matter who is elected, uh, I said this morning on a post that I made, I said I'll, I'll give you my prediction for November 9th. Jesus is Lord. Hillary never will be. Trump never will be. Jesus always will be, and, right. and I think we have to keep that in mind, no matter who Caesar is. Um, we only, as I've heard it said before, we only know who Pilate is because of Jesus. That's right. You know, there right. there is a sense in which the great Caesars and the great rulers of the world have come and gone, and we've forgotten them many times over. That's right. But or, we have, or in the Old Testament, we don't even know Pharaoh's name. Yeah. 
Very true. Yeah. Now, b- before we end this conversation, now David Dalt uh, texted me actually while we were talking. He may have, in fact, been the one that messed up our recording. I'm not sure, but your so former like, student, David Dalt, we'll, like he might do that. we'll blame it on him yes. one way or the other. Um, he wanted me to ask you about Tiglath Pileser, all right? Uh, because he was one of your students, obviously. And by, by, by the way, I should mention David Dalt um, has a wonderful podcast, and they're getting a lot of play actually on NPR in certain places. Uh, it's called Things Not Seen, and it's it's a very good show. But he, he did, he when I was talking to him, because he's literally writing the book on you mm-hmm. right now, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of the story of Tiglath Pileser and maybe why there is some relevance to his story for us to keep in mind today. Well, Tiglath Pileser was the greatest of the uh, Assyrian monarchs who uh, was very expansive in the 8th century which means during the time of Isaiah. Uh, and uh, he, his uh, empire uh, constituted a great brutal threat uh, to, the, uh, to the states of northern Israel and Judah. And uh, uh, he was uh, confronted uh, by the prophet Isaiah, not directly confronted. Right. But what Isaiah did was to uh, invite Hezekiah, the king in Jerusalem, uh, to act out of faith in Yahweh rather than out of fear of Tiglath-Pileser. Mm. So uh, Tiglath-Pileser uh, uh, summoned Israel to this great either-or mm. to decide whether the Assyrian gods or Yahweh, the God of Moses, was really God. And I think that uh, uh, we are summoned to that same kind of either-or mm. I doubt whether David Dalton knew too much about Tiglath Pileser, but uh, David and I would share the notion that it does roll off your tongue very nicely. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, David is, has been a, a, a new friend and a good friend, and so I appreciate him. And you've had a lot of influence on a lot of great people over the years, David being one of them, yeah. uh, my friend Patrick Woolsey, and, and probably uh, numerous people I, I can't even uh, think of through the years. I've had so, a lot of good students. Well, and, and I, I think that they have, um, you know, I think what you shared with them and the way that you have been a part, through God's help, of shaping people who have learned under you, um, has also helped to shape many other people along the way. And I think it's sort of been uh, out of your intellectual generosity that you've allowed many of us to thrive in our ministries. And so I would, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't take this time on this podcast um, to thank you for your faithfulness and, and what you have done over the years. Um, there are a lot more lucrative things to do with your life and sit around and think about God, you know, and write about God. Uh, but I think you've been a faithful uh, example of what that means to really wrestle with these texts. And uh, so if I do anything else during this time, uh, I always try to thank my guests, but I especially want to thank you from, from a deep place in my heart with gratitude, even as a songwriter, because you were one of the first people when I was reading your books to reveal to me the idea that um, oh, there is some artistry to the idea of being a prophet, that there really is something poetic about this, um, that even in, in these little simple songs that I try to write, sometimes we are actually doing prophetic work that is speaking the words of God to people. Um, so all that is to say thank you, and thank you for being so kind 
and generous. When I first met you, now I have to say, you know, last year I was a little nervous because you never know with theologians. Sometimes, right. sometimes they're a little crabby, you know. Uh, but it has been just such a joy, Good. and and um, and truly, it's been a real honor to get to spend these times with you and keep in touch with you over email. So thank you for your service to the church. Well, and I'm uh, I'm really glad to be with you and. Uh... And I'm uh, grateful for your ministry and uh, wish you well in it. Well, thank you so much. Well, uh, Walter Brueggemann, thank you, as I say every week to my guests, but especially this week. Thank you for being one of the voices in my head. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com. Follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames. Like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames. And keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website. And if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.